it was a new school year and they would have these keg parties and it was just wall to wall, elbow to elbow, a hundred or so students just rip-roaring Irish Catholic drunk. That's what it was. And I came in and I, it was a Friday night, I was coming from a Bible study with Campus Crusade and one guy on the floor said, hey, look at Brogy, he's got a Bible. He's got a Bible, everyone. He just filled up his mouth with beer and spat it all over me. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 to 5, which talk about the effect tribulation has on the believer. Nobody likes a time of trial, but for Christians, there is a refining that takes place which allows God to use us in ways He could never use us before. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy talks about how Christians ought to respond to tribulation. Paul in verses 3 through 5, by the Spirit of God, highlights three simple truths to help us to respond biblically to tribulation. First, in your outline, he wants us to understand how maturity is displayed by us. Tribulation is designed to mature us. And so he wants us to understand how maturity is displayed by us. Notice how verse 3 begins. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. He's moving now to the next highest level of rejoicing. We saw last time there are three levels. And he'll bring it to a crescendo when he comes to verse 11. A man was in Washington, D.C., and he looked up and he saw the National Archives building and written across the facade, it says, the past is prologue. And he said to the cab driver, well, what, what does that mean? And the cabbie said, well, that's just government talk for meaning you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, the, the phrase is famous. You know it's from Shakespeare. And basically, in the context, it means the past has set the context for the future. And that's what Paul is going to argue here. Because of your decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God, you have a new standing, you stand in the grace of God, and it has set the context for the future. And so he says, not only this, but we rejoice, we exult in our tribulations. Now, some of your translations, the ESV, NIV, NET, ISV, say we rejoice in our suffering. But I like the King James and the New American Standard here because it uses the word tribulation. And I think that's helpful because it separates it from everyday ordinary suffering. The Greek word thalipsis does not refer to what we sometimes call trials and tribulations. It's not referring to our aches and our pains, our fears, our frustrations, our sicknesses, our heartaches, and the many disappointments that we may experience in this life. Now, in English, we just tend to bleed together trials and tribulations, but they're not bled together in Holy Scripture. Uh, there's a diagram here I have for you, and as you can see, tribulation is a subset of trials. In other words, all tribulation is a trial. But not all trials in this life are tribulations. Now, certainly, James said, you can count it all joy when you encounter various trials. But while all tribulations are trials of sort, not all trials are tribulations of sort. There's a difference between the two. The word thalipsis literally means pressure. And it's used, without exception in the New Testament, of the pressure of an ungodly world on a believer. 
Uh, let me give you some examples. It's a very technical term. Use the persecution in the Word of God. The Lord Jesus said in Mark 13, for those days will be a time of tribulation, philipsis, same word, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. In the Revelation, John is speaking of those martyrs, those saints who lose their lives because they refuse to bow to Antichrist. And he says, these are the ones who come out of the great philipsis, tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, the Lord Jesus warned his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Same word. He's talking about persecution. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Likewise, Paul, in the context of suffering, persecution, living for Christ, he reminded the disciples at Lystra in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So tribulation refers to that pressure on, of an ungodly world on the believer because you stand and live for Jesus Christ. So look again at verse 3. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Now there's an assumption in this verse, and dozens like it in the New Testament, that Christians experience tribulation. And so we are to exult. We are to rejoice when it happens. Now please notice he does not say, I rejoice in spite of my tribulations but I rejoice in or for my tribulations. Why? Because he understood something about the blessing that tribulation could bring. And so I want us to think biblically like Paul did about persecution. Because sooner or later, you may not only find yourself in some trial, you may find yourself in some tribulation because you live for Jesus Christ. And Christians sometimes have different reactions. Some reason when they are persecuted, well, God doesn't know that I'm suffering. And then upon further reflection, they said, well, no, that can't be true because God knows everything. God can't even see a bird fall to the ground apart from his notice. Now, that, that can't be true. But then the devil may say, well, God knows all things, but God just doesn't care. He doesn't care about you. And then upon further re reflection, he said, well, that can't be true. God has demonstrated his love for me and that while I was a sinner, the Lord Jesus died for me. What greater expression of love is that? Not to mention, as Paul's going to argue, the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in my heart. Well, the devil may still attack and say, well, God knows. And God cares. He just can't do anything about it. His hands are tied. The Bible says, no, that's not true either because nothing is impossible with God. So it's easy to become confused if you do not have a biblical theology of tribulation. So let's read all of verse 3. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing, underscore that, circle it in your Bible, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. It's very similar to what James says. Is it not considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so we display our maturity only when we rejoice in both trials and in tribulations. And that is only possible if your mind has been renewed and that truth is in the forefront of your mind because you are filled with the Spirit and walking with God and you know what God's Word says. Now hold your finger here, would you? And I want you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, find the book of Revelation. That's the last book of the Bible. And right before Revelation, you have four little short books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and right before those four little short books, you have the books of 1 and 2 Peter. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 
In 1 Peter 4, the apostle deals with this subject of tribulation. So again, I want us to have a biblical theology, and we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture this morning. 1 Peter 4, and look, if you will, in verse 12, the first word is beloved. Now, we saw that the word beloved, the noun, speaks of a special group of people. While God loves the whole world, we are His beloved. God has a special affection for those who are saved. I love your children, but I don't love them the way I love my children. I have a special affection for my children. So God's people are called beloved. And as we saw in Romans 1 verse 7, we are beloved of God. God has a special verb form affection on us. So He's talking to believers. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now drop down to verse 14. He says to God's people, if you are reviled, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, talking about Christian suffering here, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. So he's speaking about suffering as a Christian, what Jesus called in the gospels, bearing your own cross. Now, suffering as a Christian or bearing your own cross is not due because you have a, a, to the fact that you have a migraine or some backache. It's not even the mari- man you're married to. Now, the man you're married to, ladies, he, he may be cross, but he's not your cross. Jesus is talking about bearing the cross of persecution, that the servant is not greater than his master because they hated him, they will hate you. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when, not if, but when men insult you and persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me. He doesn't say if it will happen, but when it happens, when philipsis, when persecution or tribulation comes. And if you live for Christ and you begin to grow as a Christian, you are going to invite persecution. And so as Christians, we are to react properly. As Matthew 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount teaches, as Romans 5 teaches, as James 2, and as Peter describes, again in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now whatever kind of suffering you may be experiencing today, You're not to be surprised by it, especially if you are suffering for the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian. And he refers to this suffering as a fiery ordeal. That is that kind of suffering that comes on you for being faithful to the Lord God. In the Old Testament, this Greek word, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is translated a smelting furnace. And a smelting furnace is when they would take, you know, metals and they would heat it up hot. And they would get it so hot that it would turn into a liquid and they would skim off the slag on the top. Job would say, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And so God uses fiery ordeals, persecution, thalipsis, tribulation, to purify us. He won't burn you with it, but he will purify you with it. God is the divine smelter. He knows what he is about. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is this common man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried, same word, used interchangeably, beyond that which you are able. God knows what he is about. And so Peter, one, is saying to those believers who were being persecuted, if you know this letter, he said, don't be surprised by it because it's inevitable. 
And then notice he calls this a happening. And that's an important word because it literally means to come or to work together. Persecutions just don't happen. They have meaning behind them. They come and work together. And when we come to the eighth chapter where he will speak of persecution, those being led like sheep to slaughter, he will remind us again that God works all things together for good to conform us to the image of his Son. So we sing that great hymn of the faith, when through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design the dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So don't be surprised. Instead, he tells us we are to rejoice. And he gives us some specific reasons for rejoicing. Three reasons. Notice verse 13. Number one, because of deeper fellowship. To the degree, don't look at me, look at your Bibles. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss it. Because you're going to be in my office for a counseling appointment. Well, see, didn't you even hear that sermon I preached? No, I was daydreaming, preacher. Listen, please. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. When you meet Jesus, you'll have reason for rejoicing, unashamed, not shrinking back because of the way you lived, even through persecution. See that word share? It's our Greek word koinonia. You know what koinonia is? We, we talk about koinonia or fellowship. It's communion with our Lord in suffering. Paul prayed that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Was Paul just saying, well, you know, I just want to be persecuted. No, what he was saying in that great prayer in Philippians is I want to live for Christ. I want to be holy. And he knew that if he lived for Christ and the power of his resurrection, that he would reflect the Lord Jesus and there would be people who would not like him and he would be persecuted. In essence, he was saying, listen, I I, I want to obey God, and I want my life to be so holy, so consistent, that I might even see the persecution that Jesus said would happen if I live a godly, holy life. Now, I've not suffered much for the cause of Christ by comparison to many of our brethren in the world today and other parts of the world, but I know what it means to be lied about. I know what it means to be slandered, to have your words twisted. To be left out by relatives or sometimes even by Christians because you make them uncomfortable. Your standards are too high. Not legalistic, just biblical. And Peter says, listen, when this happens, don't be discouraged. Keep on rejoicing. Because in the midst of that suffering, there's an intimacy that you will know with the Lord Jesus because he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you all the way to the end of the age. So not only is there greater fellowship, that's one reason to rejoice, but also there's greater blessing. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This is a word that's used throughout the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely, not for being obnoxious, Some people, they call persecution. They say, oh, I'm being persecuted. They weren't being persecuted. They were just being plain obnoxious. But on account of me, 
Then he said, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. That's what he's saying. Listen, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, if you're carnal and you're not living a godly life, the world won't reproach you. They won't have any problem with you because you will be very much like them. The church has taken on a new paradigm. The evangelical church in America is saying we need to become like the world to win the world. That's not the way it works. All you end up doing is gathering huge numbers of lost people. It's our distinctiveness, our salt, our light, our differentness that God uses to bring about opportunities for general, real, true conversion. But when you drink what the world drinks, when you watch the same dirty movies they watch, when you laugh at the same jokes that they laugh at and go to the same places they go to and uh, places that you shouldn't be as a Christian, they're glad to have you around. In fact, you make them more comfortable because you name the name of Christ and you give them a sense of pleasure that everything is just fine between them and God. But listen, when you live for Christ, the world will come against you. So he says, rejoice. Why? Great fellowship, sweeter fellowship. Reward, blessing, third. Notice, increased power. If you've been reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering just has a way of drawing you closer to the Lord. The spirit of glory rests upon you. I remember really the first time I had been persecuted. I wasn't saved but six months. And I was coming in the fall of my freshman year, or my sophomore year, into that uh, dormitory. It was a new school year, and they would have these keg parties, and it was just wall-to-wall, elbow-to-elbow, a hundred or so students, just rip-roaring Irish Catholic drunk. That's what it was. And I came in, and I, it was a Friday night. I was coming from a Bible study with Campus Crusade, and one guy on the floor said, hey, look at Brogy. He's got a Bible. He's got a Bible, everyone. He just filled up his mouth with beer and spat it all over me. But God says... When you are persecuted for his name's sake, the spirit of glory rests upon you. The Shekinah glory was the very presence of God in the Old Testament. Stephen, when he's being stoned to death, the Shekinah glory so filled his countenance, his face shone like the face of an angel. It's what Peter describes in chapter 1 as joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you are never more a recipient of God's presence and God's power than when you are reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 16, he further develops our theology. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Instead of shame, we ought to feel honor. That's the way the apostles felt when they were flogged by the Jewish religious leaders of their day. In Acts 5, Luke tells us, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We're not to be ashamed. We're to glorify God. Not feeling ashamed is negative. Glorifying God, that's positive. And it takes both to be a balanced witness. And if we seek to glorify God, we'll not be ashamed of the name of the Lord Jesus. We won't be crippled by persecution when it comes. We will give God honor and praise. Polycarp, the great bishop of Smyrna in the middle of the second century, was arrested for his faith and threatened with death. And one of the historians of the day recorded the event. 
That great pastor said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The Roman officer charged with the execution said, Sir, I have respect for your age. Simply say, in reference to the Christians, away with these atheists and you will live. And so Polycarp stood up, surrounded by idolaters all around him, and he said, away with these atheists. And they burned him alive. Listen, people watch our reaction to suffering. And I may have told you this story before, but that guy who filled his mouth with beer and spat it all over me, his senior year, the last week before I graduated, came to me and I led him to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for it is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The argument is very clear. If the saved go through this life with great difficulty, what is going to be the outcome of the lost man? Now, he's quoting, as you can see in the New American Standard from a change of typeset, Proverbs 11.31. And when he says he, we are saved with difficulty, he's not suggesting that our salvation can be unsure, that we can lose our salvation, because he's already affirmed our eternal security in this letter. Nor is he suggesting that God struggles in saving us, that God somehow is weak in the process of trying to secure us. He's not doubting the outcome of our salvation. He is simply reminding us of the difficult road to heaven. Again, it's what Paul told the saints in Lystra. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Every day is not Friday. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... Again, what will there be outcome? You know, again, don't miss this. If it's with difficulty that we're saved. In other words, God doesn't promise you an easy life. Don't let anybody tell you that if you receive Jesus, it's all going to be all rose petals and no thorns and thistles. There's going to be heartache for following the Lord Jesus. But listen, as much as anything, this is a compassionate plea towards those who are lost among us. You see, God tells us in his word, throughout his word, there's coming a day when he will make every wrong right. God is just. He will pay back with affliction those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Paul says they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and the glory of his power. Peter like the Lord Jesus, is giving us a compassionate plea. Jesus said, you have heard it said you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That verse has nothing to do with passivism, as some of our dear brethren have used it out of context. He's dealing with the saints of God who are persecuted for living for God, and he says, love even your enemies. You don't develop the attitude, God will get you. Get him, God. No. Paul said there was a time when I persecuted the church of God. But what did God do? He had mercy upon me. Verse 19, he concludes, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, because it's part of God's will for our life, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. Now go back to Romans 5. 
There's something else I want you to see. First of all, not only how maturity is displayed by us, I want you to notice how maturity is developed in us. How maturity is developed in us. Look again at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Again, underscoring you're thinking that word, no. There's something you must know or understand if this is going to be developed in your life. First, no, he says that tribulation brings about perseverance. We couldn't learn perseverance. Some of your translations say endurance. Apart from tribulation, because without tribulation and suffering, there would be nothing we'd have to endure. So he's saying, listen, you can rejoice in your trials. That's what James says, knowing that it produces endurance. And let endurance, it's a choice we have, let endurance have its perfect result. And if we don't let and respond to endurance and, I mean, to trials and, and difficulties and tribulation properly, at least with trials, God often has to repeat them. And in tribulation, if we don't respond properly, we lose our witness. We might even break our fellowship and our intimacy with the Lord. Now, perseverance is a Greek word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament, stability. He's talking about steel in your spine. That if you have a biblical theology of persecution, that when it comes, if you're thinking your thoughts after God's thoughts, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, instead of it causing you to crumble, it will cause you to stand strong as a child of God. That's what he wants for us. Jesus also taught that tribulation will often reveal whether or not a person is a genuine believer. Not only does it grow the believer, but sometimes it separates the believer from the unbeliever. Remember in the parable of the sower, he said uh, of the rocky soil, and, those, and, and the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. They believe here. That's profession. They profess to be born again, and there's a lot of folks who do. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation, in time of testing, they fall away. Why? Because they're not truly converted. It's here, but with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. In the parallel text, in Mark's gospel, he says it this way. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution, philipsis, same word, arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I remember talking to a friend, his name is Kevin, and Kevin supposedly received Christ, and he went back and began to live for Christ. And they started saying, heaven, Kevin. Hey, here comes heaven, Kevin. Here comes Kevin, heaven. That's all it took. And he crumbled. Jesus thought that very often a mark between a true believer and unbeliever, and one of the things that will often separate them is tribulation. To listen again to today's message, Maturity Through Tribulation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Today's program is number ROM22. There's still time to participate in the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, May 11th through the 21st. 
Dr. Brogy will lead a group of STS listeners through many of the historical sites listed in the Bible. Participants will not only have the scriptures come alive, but Pastor Carl will offer the context that will bring newfound meaning to your love and understanding of God's Word. Find out more by visiting stsisraeltour.com, but act soon because registration ends February 11th. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at maturity through tribulation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.